In Islam, where Islam is more violently adhered to, more people are getting saved uh, than usual. And so there are thousands being saved out of this Fulani tribe. In Senegal, we call them the Pular, and we do uh, outreach with the Pular there. Malik Jope, our lead pastor, he's Wolof ethnicity, but he lived in a Pular village in Mauritania for several years, so he speaks fluent uh, Pular or Fulani. So we'll be meeting with some of these Christians, uh, leaders that are from these regions, and we're going to help get them set up to do online media, Bible training, and, and uh, teaching. And uh, I started back in November of last year. We launched a page online where we do teaching in the Fulani language, and that has just taken off. Our Wolof page has been exploding for years and really reaching millions around North Africa and other parts of Europe and around the world and we have people writing in all the time, asking questions. We've seen several saved through that, and we're going to form a Bible Institute as a result. We're going to bring guys up and disciple them in person that we've either met online through, through correspondence where there's no churches, and they've asked us to come and do church planting or start Bible studies. So we're going to bring guys up that we've either led to Christ or that, uh, that we've found that just don't have a church they belong to bring them up, train them, send them back, help them lead Bible studies, and then start doing a tour and just see if we can get churches started throughout Senegal. Uh, we're also going to reach down into Gambia, help train them to do Islamic evangelism, train some men. Uh, we were able to raise a little bit of funds, uh, buying some media equipment that we'll give to these men we're training. And then they're going to go out and spread the gospel throughout North Africa as they're organizing church plants with the thousands that are being saved. It's just, it's incredible what God is doing. Like I said, I could spend all night, but uh, we'll get to the scriptures. And then I'll just have to ask Pastor Henry to give me another opportunity to share some more of the details of what God is doing. But it is incredible. Thank you for praying for what the Lord is doing it there in Senegal. It is very exciting uh, just to be a part of God's work there. And so pray for this upcoming trip uh, in December that I'll be making to Senegal. Ezra chapter 7. Do you ever have <laughs> in life, and I, I think this is an experience we all uh, can relate to. You ever, you ever have maybe a plan in life? You, you, you got it all outlined. You got your plan. Everything's set up. And then when it comes to executing that plan or you're, you're going to do what you plan to do, it just doesn't turn out the way you expected it. For example, you heard Pastor Henry wasn't going to be here tonight. You thought, oh boy, we might get out of church early, you know, and who's going to preach? And then it didn't turn out how you expected. You saw Josh getting up there like, oh man, we're going to be here all night. As uh, Brother Mark Smith mentioned as I'm coming up here, make sure you can see the clock. <laughs> okay, well, joke's on you because you came in late. African time, and so I'm going to go African time tonight, and we, we do our midweek service. We go for hours, all right? And so there is, I'll get you out of here on a good time. I'll try to anyways. But sometimes things don't go as planned in life. Ezra and Nehemiah, which originally is just one book, it was divided into two books later, but if you kind of look at it as a whole, we're not going to look at the whole picture, but we're going to try to give a quick overview and then draw some observations out of the passage and then try to make some personal application out of it, I love the books of Ezra and Nehemiah because there, there's some amazing events taking place as God is working through his people, but then sometimes things don't turn out exactly as we might have planned it to turn out. You have that happen in life? I remember uh, our first year in synagogue, we had a pool in our backyard, 
and uh, it gets hot in Senegal, 120 degrees, you know, during the hot season. And so we had this little kiddie pool in the back, and we'd go splash around there, and the kids would go back and splash around. And for me, it was just a constant battle to keep this pool clean with all the dust and the sand. And it was more of a nuisance to me, but I did it for the wife and kids. You know, they wanted it there. And so we were doing everything we could. The season was coming to an end. We're nearing the cold season when you got to wear your coat and your hat because it drops down to about 70 degrees and it gets really cold, okay? And uh, people are wearing winter jackets at that time. So anyways, we're getting ready to close up the pool. I'm like, yes, we get to close out the pool and I don't have to deal with it during cold season. And then I got this brilliant idea. I want to impress our neighbors, make a big impression. And one of the ways you can make an impression on your neighbors is doing something kind for their kids. So I thought, here's what we'll do. Right before we close out the pool, I'll open up the back gate and we'll let the neighbor kids come in and swim in the two bobs pool, the white guy's pool. This will be amazing. And so I went back there. Had it all planned out. You know, it's going to be a great time. Kids will have fun. And they'll go back and tell their parents how much fun they have. And it will give some open doors, you know, to be able to uh, kind of build some relationships. So I got to the back gate, opened it up. And Senegal is like it was when I grew up. Kids, you know, you just kind of go out from sun up till sundown. And you're just out until you come back at night. And so kids are everywhere. So I opened up. Little kid walks by. He said, hey, kid. Go get your friends and tell them that I'm going to let you guys swim in the swimming pool. And uh, he didn't go anywhere. He just said, hey, the two-bob is opening up his gate and he's going to let us swim. Come on. And before I could compute what was going on, kids came like an ocean wave, just kind of a tsunami of kids. They're coming over walls. They're jumping around the corner. They just came directly toward the gate. And I see them coming going, you know, what have I done? And about 30 kids within seconds are storming the gates. They come running in. And so I'm trying to, all right, one, two, we can only have so many. So I got about 30 kids. I said, that's it. So I, I go to close the door. I see another wave of kids coming, you know, they're on their way. And so I'm pushing the door shut. I'm trying to latch the gate so they can't get in and as I'm trying to latch the gate I turn around and here's these kids diving in the pool the only thing is what I didn't realize I didn't know yet but I do now is when kids over there swim it was just boys but when kids over there swim they don't have swimming clothes they just disrobed and they're all just woo diving in the pool I said wait guys guys no I finally get the gate latch I run over I said no guys at least you know keep Keep your undies on or something like that. You just have something on. And then I turn and look as I'm trying to get the kids to put some clothes on. I turn around and there's about 20 kids pushing against the gate. I see the gate bowing. It's going back and forth. And the gate just burst open and in comes another wave of kids. And so I'm running over there trying to pick them up, throwing them out one by one, just trying to shut it. There's too many. I finally get it shut again. Another 20 kids that snuck in. And by the time I get it shut, I turn around and those 20 kids are disrobing. I'm like, no, guys, knock it off. And then I turn around the corner. Julie comes out. She comes walking out. She looks. She goes, ah, Josh, they're naked. I said, I know. She said, you know? You told them? I said, no, I didn't tell them. They just did. And And then, to make matters worse, this kid climbs up. Now, people there don't like their picture taken, and I get it. You don't take pictures. You know, they don't want their their situation exploited and, you know, National Geographic coming in taking pictures, and then you go back and make a bunch of money. They kind of think anytime you take a picture, you're going to make a ton of money off of their picture. And so this kid climbs over the gate and yells for all the world to hear, the two Bob, he's taking pictures. I said, no, I'm not. These kids are, no, no, this is, 
So needless to say, my fun swim day for the neighbor kids to build relationships didn't turn out the way I thought it would. And uh, finally, I thought, okay, I just got to drain the pool. So I drained all the water out, and the kids went, oh, and then they finally put their clothes on and left. And I said, no, won't be doing that again. Sometimes things don't quite turn out exactly the way that you expected it would. And that's kind of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, God is doing something great. The story, the context of Ezra really begins in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And the Bible tells us in verse 15, And the Lord God of their fathers sent unto them, that is the children of Israel, messengers rising up betimes, and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked, to the children of Israel, they mocked the messengers of God and despised his word and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people and there was no remedy. So you know the history of Israel because of their sin. Specifically, Jeremiah tells us, because they were not respecting the Sabbaths that God had commanded God said, you're going to have to dwell in a foreign land according to the Torah. Deuteronomy tells us, you disobey, you'll be, you'll, you'll be cursed. You, you obey, you'll be blessed. It's real simple. Do what you're supposed to do and it'll be good. Don't do what you're not supposed to do. Do what you're not supposed to do and you'll be scattered to the nations. And so this was the Babylonian invasion and the exiling of the people. And we know the story of the prophets, Jeremiah telling them, you need to just uh, succumb to this. You need to go into exile, build houses, raise your families in a foreign land and just learn to live because God, this is going to happen. God's word is going to be accomplished. So the verse 17 tells us that he brought, God brought upon them the king of the Chaldees and slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion upon the young men or maid and old men or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and all the treasures of the king and his princes. All these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces with fire and destroyed all the godly, goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried away into Babylon where they were servants to him and to his sons and to the reign of the kingdom of Persia. Verse 21 in Second Chronicles gives us the context of what's going on. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. You don't want to keep the Sabbath, God said, and I will force it to happen. You will be desolate. You will be overrun. You will suffer the consequence of the decisions that you have made to disobey my word. And even in your disobedience, my word is going to be accomplished. It is a negative effect, a negative consequence, but the word of God is going to be accomplished. We as Christians, and really every individual who's created by God, are called to pursue the will of God. Now the first answer of that call in the pursuit of the will of God is to submit to Jesus, to confess Jesus as Savior, to confess your sin and to be born again. But as Christians, it is our job to pursue the will of God, to obey His word and to submit to His ways. Submission to the will of God brings benefits and blessings. 
God's will is going to be accomplished one way or another. Now, when we obey, when we pursue God, when we pursue His will and pursue submission to His will, there's blessings and benefits involved. But either way, whether in obedience or disobedience, God's will is going to be accomplished. His word will be fulfilled and He'll do it with or without us. God is at work in this world. He doesn't need us, but we absolutely need Him. Now, We've just set the context of Ezra. You know about the history of the Babylonian exile and the captivity. Several years have gone by now. And now we begin to see as, as Israel is setting their heart to the things of God, Daniel is beginning to study Jer- Jeremiah and the prophets, and it's, it's nearing the time of the end of the captivity. There's anticipation that is beginning to build among the captives. They know that the end is near. They know that the day of the Lord is arriving where God is going to raise up men and lead them out of captivity back into Jerusalem, gather them and fulfill His work and His word. There's great anticipation that is building as God's will is going to be accomplished. Jesus said this in John 4, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. This principle is essential if we're going to understand our role in His Word and understand how we are to participate in what God is doing. You see, God is going to accomplish His work and accomplish His will one way or another. But if Israel is going to get on board, if, if the individual Jewish captive is going to get on board, he needs to be studying Scripture preparing for this return to the land and the gathering. So just, I want you to imagine, 70 years, 50, 60, 70 years have passed. Exiled from your home. You've done what you're told you were supposed to do. You've tried to remain undefiled from the land. You've tried to remain separate in an unideal situation. You've raised your family. You've tried to train your kids to do the best they could. And now... Everything you've taught them your entire life is about to come into fulfillment. Seventy years are almost up. God is going to regather us and send us back to the land. I want you to feel the anticipation. All right, It's almost the same as when Messiah was supposed to come. If you study prophecy of the Old Testament, they knew exactly when Jesus was supposed to be born and come and arrive and when the Messiah was going to come and fulfill his work. Now, the majority of people just didn't like who the Messiah turned out to be. Because what the Messiah turned out to be was, a, was an indictment against us. We're sinners in need of a Savior. We're not just a great people who need a conquering king to overrule the world. We need a Savior because we are just as bad as the pagans. Right? So all that being said, there was great ex- anticipation for the arrival of Messiah. And in the same vein, there's this great anticipation for what God is about to do. And what is about to take place is incredible. It's a story of miracles, of men and women arising to the occasion, taking on an impossible task, facing a resilient and persistent enemy, and overcoming impossible odds. We're not going to have time tonight to read the entire passage, but if I get done on time tonight, then your homework is to go back home this week and read Ezra and Nehemiah, right, to get some of the context. We're going to give a quick overview. God begins to work. He moves in the heart of the king to favor Israel. The Bible tells us that in the first year, the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is in 2 Chronicles chapter 
36, verse 22, God moved the heart of the king of Persia, Cyrus, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it into writing, saying, Thus saith the king of Persia, Cyrus, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you all his people? The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. God is about to accomplish his work. He's going to fulfill his word. The key here is that the word of the Lord might be accomplished. Now, let's, let's get that drilled into our heads. God is going to accomplish his work. He has a work that he is doing in this world. We have an obligation to be involved in that work. Now, the question is, and I think what we're going to find in Ezra and Nehemiah as we kind of break down some of the passages, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do I know I'm involved in the work? How do I know I'm doing what God wants me to be doing? Because as we're about to find out, despite having experienced some amazing things, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, these great men, they're about to see God's hand move mightily. They're going to see some amazing things happen in their life. They're going to see God's hand move in ways they have never seen before. And yet at the end of the day, when the story's finished, it doesn't quite turn out how we might expect it to. The Bible tells us that God has given us a calling, a commission to go. And when you go where God sends you, you'll discover that God is already there at work. When you surrender... To the pursuit of the will of God, you'll discover that God's work, the work that he is finishing, will be fulfilled in you. We really want to stress that point tonight. Because as we make observations in this passage, and as you take the entirety of scriptures as a whole, our job is to pursue the will of God, not primarily and necessarily to do the work of God. A lot of times we get those two things mixed up. I'm glad I learned early on in ministry in Senegal that it's not my job to build a work here in Senegal. Senegal is a difficult country. I probably told this before, but I remember getting ready to go to Senegal when we were on deputation. And I was in a church, and there was a magazine from a prominent Baptist uh, mission organization. I picked it up, and it had an article about North Africa. And as I'm reading through it, Uh, the director of Africa from this mission was talking about all the hostility and oppositions that he faced in encountering different Islamic people groups throughout North Africa. And then he got to Senegal. I'm like, oh, he's going to talk about Senegal. And when he got to Senegal, he said the most, not violently opposed, but the most resistant to the gospel among all the Islamic people groups that I encountered in North Africa, the most resistant to the gospel were the Wolof people. I thought, oh, those are who we're going to reach. And then I remember shortly after that, we're getting ready to head off to Senegal. Support's raised. We're going to head out. And we were in a conference with Don Sis. And he came up to me afterward. He said, Josh, he said, you're going to Senegal. Be praying for you. He said, you know, I've been all over the world in different countries, and every country definitely has their challenges. Every country seems to have some particular obstacles to overcome to reach the people. And that's true. And then he said, but Senegal 
He said, I've been to Senegal. Senegal seems to have all the obstacles all wrapped up into one. I said, oh, thank you for the encouragement. You know, boy, let's get down to it. But I'm glad I learned early on that we are not in this country to build a work. That is not a burden that God has called us to bear. And so many of us, when trying to fulfill what God has called us to do, think that it's our job to sort of build the work and do the work. Now, God has called us to labor for Him. We're to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. So don't get me wrong. But our job primarily is to pursue the will of God. Jesus said, my meat, what consumes me, is to do the will of the Father and to finish His work. As you pursue the will of God, you're going to find out that not only is God going to plug you in as you pursue his will, not only will he plug you into the work that he has for you to accomplish, but you're going to be completely compatible with the specific work he has for you. So often we skip the pursuit of God and the pursuit of knowing Jesus and, and, and just growing in the Lord and just think that if I, just, if I do a work and if I'm laboring and working hard, well, then I'm doing something for God. And maybe you spend your entire life building a work. And this is why I, I didn't want to spend my entire life in Senegal building a work on my own efforts and my own name and then realize I missed what God was doing in this country. I want to pursue Jesus and then make Jesus known and let Jesus plug us into what he's doing there. And I'm so thankful I learned that early on. But when you begin to pursue God's will and then you go where he sends you to accomplish the work that he's called you to do, you're going to discover that God's power goes before you. His provision is abundant for you. I mean, read Ezra and Nehemiah. It is amazing with each of the three main characters, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, In each account, an abundance of provision is given for them to go and fulfill the work that God is calling them to accomplish. Protection is given. The the provision and providence, God's guidance in His hand, in every step of the way, as you pursue Jesus, then you begin to discover that every step of the way, God is there providentially guiding. I think about Ron Bragg. He told me back in the day when he first went to Senegal, this was some... Back in, I guess, 76 is when they first went to Senegal. And at that time, they only gave a one-year visa. And uh, he had to, he told me, he said, we had to sign up with the ecumenical church thing or whatever it was. And he said, I wasn't going to do that. You know, bless God, I'm an independent Baptist. And so he said, I was going to go straight into the Capitol and I'm going to get the visa signed with bypassing the uh, church council that you're supposed to sign up with. And so he drove into the Capitol and uh, went to the the for foreigners and all that. He went in to get everything signed for the foreign minister. And he gets there and he's in the waiting room. He has no idea who to meet with or what exactly he's supposed to do to get it filled out. But he said, I was in the waiting room. And he said, a gentleman comes out in a nice suit. And he says, can I help you? And he said, I'm uh, from San Luis, Senegal. And I'm just here to try to get a visa renewed. We're missionaries here. He said, in San Luis, what's your name? He said, I'm Ron Bragg. And he said, Come with me. And so he followed him in the other room, sat down, and uh, he said, I've, I've, I've heard about you, Ron Bragg. He said, uh, you're up in San Luis. Very good. He's working on some papers. And he said, within a couple minutes, he big, gets his stamp out and hands him a 10-year visa. And Ron Bragg says, this is 10 years. Normally, it's supposed to be one year, right? He said, well, I can do what I want. He said, well, why are you giving me a 10-year visa? He said, I don't know exactly what you're doing up there. But he said, 
my brother is your neighbor, and I've heard about you. My brother's a disgrace to our family. He's a drunk. But I heard about this white guy that moved in next door named Ron Bragg. He said, ever since this white guy has been talking to my brother, he's changed his ways, and he's not a drunk anymore, and he's not a disgrace to a family. So I don't know what you're doing up there, but keep it up. And he handed him the visa. And then he went to the church council. He said, and waved in, look what I got. All right, all that. Anyway, so he probably shouldn't have done that part. But oh, anyways, you know, just God's providence and God's guidance. Seeing God work in an amazing way. Look, there's a few directions you could take when you're studying the book of Ezra, all right? You might focus on God's sovereign providence, on his power. God uses a pagan king to fulfill his word. There's four main kings in the story. Cyrus, Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, Darius. And in each step of the way, God guides these pagan kings, touches their heart to fulfill what God is desiring to do. Same thing happened to me. I went in to get my paperwork filled out when I was in San Luis just recently. And I walked in and the guy said, hey, I, you're a doubt. Doubt is my name in synagogue, David. And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, man, I've been following your guys' teaching and some of the stuff you do online. He said, man, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. And uh, he said, in fact, we've been there 14 years and haven't yet got our visa our actual card, it's always just we have to renew it every year. And we didn't get the 10-year thing like Ron Bragg did. At least it hadn't come in yet. It was just paperwork piling up, whatever. It just never came. And he did some paperwork, filed it out, and within a week it was there. All right? We're just watching God provide and move in the hearts of those who aren't even believers. When you pursue God's will, you're going to see God's providence. I've told this story before, walking up to our mission when we're getting ready to open. And uh, the, na- the guy standing there, in fact, now I'm just popping into my head. I wonder if this was that guy's brother who was a drunk. But he, this old man was sitting at the door. And he said, hey, too, Bob. And he was talking to all my neighbors. He said, do you know Ron Bragg? I said, yeah, and we haven't opened up yet. So I'm nervous. We're two doors from our mosque. And all of our neighbors are Muslim. There's no other ministry in our area. There was one kind of charismatic church that tried to move into the area. And they got chased off. And we're not quite as wild as the charismatics. But we're pretty adamant with the gospel, okay, and preaching the gospel. And so I'm nervous about how people are going to respond. And he said, hey, do you know Ron Bragg? I said, yeah, he was a missionary here. He's my director. He said he was my neighbor growing up. And uh, he said his, his kids would play with my kids. And he was always there for me. And he turns to all my neighbors, all the men that were standing around him and said, that was the greatest two Bob I knew, the nicest guy. Then he said, hey, do you know the Miss Baptist mission, La Mission Baptiste? I said, yeah, that's what we're doing, what Ron Bragg did all those years ago. That's what we're doing here, Bible studies and a library, and we're going to show Christian films. And he turned to all my neighbors and said, this is a good mission. You get behind this guy. This is a Muslim guy. He said, you get behind him. You, you, whatever he needs, you provide. You ought to want to hear you guys ever give him any trouble. You, you guys be good to him. And uh, they're all you know, nodding their heads. I'm wagging my head. Yeah, listen to this guy. I had never seen him before, never seen him after. Now, there's a lot of directions you could take when reading Ezra. And I love looking at how God providentially guides and works in just some amazing ways. When you take that first step of faith to step out and do God's will, God provides. The provision is crazy. He touches the heart of many to contribute to the Jews returning to Israel. Ezra 1, chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 6. And all they that were about them about the Jews, those who were going back to Jerusalem. They strengthened their hands with the vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with precious things. Besides all that was willingly offered. 
God says, I need you to go back. And not only that, but you need the provision necessary to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the foundation. And uh, God just touched the heart of their pagan neighbors to give them all kinds of gold. I, they, they, didn't, they don't even know why. Man, I want to give. And we've had people even when we discuss, sometimes we'll be at a doctor's office or we'll talk about what we're doing and different outreach. And guys that aren't even Christian, they know in their hearts, this is something that's unique and special. It's just Can I do something to help? Can I give something? Can I offer something? Man, God just provides the needs. I remember one time back on deputation, I was in a church up in Canada, and a missionary was presenting the work, and we were up in Canada, so I didn't have any cash on me, but this missionary said for for $50, you can feed, I think it was feed an orphan for a month for $50 with the ministry he was doing. And I said, Lord, I don't have any cash to give this guy. We don't have a check or anything. But I, I would like to give him $50 before he leaves. And if you could give me $50 somehow, I'd like it to give it to him. After the service was over, the evangelist who was there that night comes up to me and said, Brother, just want to shake your hand and uh, say, I'm praying for you in Senegal. And it was one of those handshakes where there's some paper in the, you know, in the handshake there. And I looked down and you guess what's in it? $50. I said, well, there's the $50 to give to this guy. And I mean, we could, again, I could be here all night telling time after time of God's provision, answering prayer, the exact monetary needs or the exact what we needed in prayer. Uh, The guy, young man, we just hired for our media. Our media has just expanded so extensively. We we have over 600,000 followers in Senegal and the regions around with millions of views on a regular basis, and we're expanding into multiple languages now and training other men. And uh, just, it's, just, it's overwhelming now because it's just Malik and I. And so we're trying to learn how to use AI to respond to certain things so that Malik doesn't have to respond to every question. And he'll come in some days in the office. He's up till 3 a.m. talking to somebody about the gospel. And we'll get, we'll get young men. Usually around our main demographic is ages 18 to 40. Uh, 70% are men. And these guys will sit, and a lot of them who get saved are young men who have reached that age where they're starting to question things. But in Islam, you can't question publicly. It's a great sin to question your faith. And so they'll hide out in their room for about six months watching our videos. And then they'll contact us and say, hey, a lot of my questions you've answered, and now I have some more questions. And so Malik, he'll be up late sometimes talking. It's just as it expands, it's getting overwhelming. And it's just one of the many tools we use to reach people with the gospel. So I said, Lord, could you, we're a month away from going back to the States. Lord, we want to keep going with video content and and recording with Malik. I said, Lord, would you send us a young man who speaks Wolof, who understands Islamic evangelism, who's a Christian, of course, who understands Islamic evangelism, who knows how to do media, that I don't have to train him how to use a camera and how to do video editing. And Lord, if you could, could you send somebody that knows how to do Adobe Premiere Pro, because that's what we're using right now. And so, but somebody I don't have to train how to use it. Lord, could you, and I had this very specific list. Could he even be a little gifted in graphic design so it doesn't look sloppy, but it looks decent when we do graphics and things like that. And so I had a pretty specific prayer list. After about a week or two weeks of praying, a gentleman in our community comes to me and says, Pastor, can I meet with you? I said, yeah, yeah. He's from Nigeria. He comes and he says, Pastor, my son just graduated with a degree, and I want, him to, I want him to see that he can use his degree to serve the Lord with what he's been trained in, not just for making money. And I want him to be able to make money, but I want him to see that he can use it to serve the Lord. And uh, he said, if you know anybody that could use his skills uh, in the ministry, would you let me know? And I said, oh, what is he doing? As he's handing me 
his resume, he said, oh, he's trained in videography and uh, graphic design and web design. And I took the resume, and it was my exact prayer list that I had been praying all the way down to the, the editing software he was trained on was Adobe Premiere Pro, right? You cannot get more specific than that. God answering and providing I mean, we could spend all night going through Ezra. And as you read it, I want you to focus on these three things. Number one, focus on God's provision. Focus on God's sovereign providence, His power, His provision. Underline it, mark it. God provides. God is every step of the way. His protection, His provision was given for the journey. Even the king offered protection. Okay, read in uh, Ezra chapter 8, they get to the river Ahava, and uh, Ezra's kind of nervous. I don't, we're not going to get to it tonight, but I encourage you to go read it, because Ezra gets to, the, gets to the river, and he tells the Lord, he tells everybody, let's wait here three days, and let's start fasting and praying, because we're about to go into dangerous territory, and the king offered to give protection. He offered to send soldiers, but I already told them we don't need them, because we got God on our side. You know, he got a little bit hyped up in the, in the moment, and Ezra said, bless God, we don't need, we got God on our side, and if God is for us, who can be against us? And then they get to the river and realize the reality is about to hit. We're about to go in a very dangerous situation. Maybe we should have got the king's soldiers. And so he says, but I was ashamed to ask the king because I already told him if God's with us, all right, go and read the passage, then God's going to protect us. So we fasted and we asked God. I lo- what fasting does, it helps you discern your own desires from what God desires. So often we get mixed up with what our emotions want and our passions want. Fasting is laying aside your base desires, food. It's laying aside and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, Put aside even my most base and necessary desires and cravings for seeking and discerning what is God's desire for me. And he said, all right, do we go back and get the soldiers? Do we go through? What do we do? They fasted. They decided to go through. And at the end of the passage in verse 23, the Bible says God was entreated of us, protected us all the way. You see, a lot of young people and a lot of questions I get asked in churches as we travel and we talk about working in North Africa. For example, we're going to start getting into Niger. I met with a missionary, David Edens, who spent 40 years in Niger. They just had a coup. And he's back in the States now, but he he's now has to go off radio because he can't get funds in there. So we're going to help him get set up with, uh, with social media and doing outreach into that region. He translated the Bible into Tamajic language. They began distributing the New Testament, and just in the past 10 years, he's seen more results than in the 40-plus years he's been there combined. He said there's 11 imams throughout these northern regions who have converted their chronic schools into Bible schools because they got a New Testament, and there wasn't even a missionary there guiding them. They had the New Testament and the radio program of the Bible teaching, and they're teaching the Bible, and churches are getting started. But yeah, it's dangerous in some of these locations. He had some harrowing stories he shared with me of just coming into close calls in these areas. The pastor I was just with in Georgia, a suicide bomb went off just two doors down when he was living in that country. And uh, so it, it, it's, it can be dangerous. But here's the thing. The question we do get asked a lot is, is it safe? But that's not the question. See, if you have to ask in doing the work of God, is it safe? then you might want to find another line of work. Because the question isn't, is it safe? The question is, is God sovereign? And if God is sovereign, then God's going to take care of me every step of the way. And maybe God has it in His plan for my life for things not to exactly turn out the way I expected it. 
Now, just to give a quick overview, we can look at his provision, his protection. We can look at his awesome power. We could talk about the inspiration of the mighty leaders that God had called. He called Zerubbabel, raised him up. He went back, gathered 40,000 exiles. They went back to Jerusalem. They built the foundation. They built up the altars. And I mean, there, there's an excitement, anticipation going on. He was an inspirational leader. and People are getting behind him and they're moving forward and advancing for the work of God. And then he raises up Ezra, who the Bible says in chapter 7, verse uh, number 10, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So Ezra is preparing himself to do the work of God. And then when the time comes for the need of someone to teach the Torah... Ezra was God's guy. And then Ezra rises to the challenge. They go into Israel and he sees the Torah reestablished. They reestablish Passover for the first time in 70 years. I mean, you can imagine just the excitement of worshiping God back in the land where they had been led away from. And all of these great things, Nehemiah building the wall in such a short time. I, I love reading about the inspirational leaders in the scripture. But there's oftentimes a part of Scripture that we neglect. And it's this. While we can focus on God's sovereign power, His sovereign provision, His care for us, His leading, His guidance, if we can focus on and be inspired by the great leaders, the men and women that God used throughout Scriptures, there's a third aspect that we often forget, and it's our humanity a lot of times gets in the way and we make a mess of things. Things don't always turn out the way you expect. With all the anticipation that's taking place, with all of the excitement, Zerubbabel, he gets the foundations laid, he builds up the temple, uh, builds up the, the foundation, and then what happens? You can go back and read in chapter 3 and chapter 4, they get the temple foundation laid, they put up some of the altars, and they can see visually how big the temple is going to be, and it's kind of it's coming together. And all of the young people, man, they are excited. We get to be a part of this. What God is doing? I mean, they're just they're pumped. This is awesome. And the Bible says they started singing. They had the singers and the priests, and everybody's there. They're doing sacrifices, and they are pumped and excited. But then go back and read chapter four. As they're in the middle of worship, the old men start crying. <laughs> okay, and they're not crying for joy. They're crying because. I remember back in my day. <laughs> it was way bigger. This is nothing. This is pathetic. Back in my day, it was, you should have seen Solomon's temple. It was huge. And the Bible says you couldn't discern the weeping from the rejoicing because they were so discouraged and disappointed that the work wasn't what they thought it should have been. See, in the Bible, as you're reading Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah, the Bible kind of presents it the way the Hebrew authors give it. It kind of goes in cycles. The Bible uses this kind of a, a rhetoric a lot, the way it presents stories and narrative. It goes in cycles. So you go with Zerubbabel, it goes through his story. And then each story, it goes to Ezra and then Nehemiah, and they kind of circle back. Sometimes they overlap each other sometimes. But at the end of each cycle, as they're telling the narrative of these three men, they kind of end anticlimactically. Because here you have Zerubbabel, who's pumped about, hey, we're worshiping. He looks out and a bunch of the old guys are like, oh, this is awful. Back in my day, it was way better. We used to fill the tents. And man, we used to have people in church all the time. We'd be packed. And boy, today it's just not what it used to be. And they're measuring and gauging God's work by past achievements or by, by tangible or outward 
means of measuring. So you imagine you're a young guy like, this is awesome! And the guy next to you is like, eh, not really. <laughs> okay, you kind of put a damper on things. And then they come to Zerubbabel and say, hey, by the way, Zerubbabel, we don't have enough priests because all of the men here are defiled with pagan wives. <laughs> and it ends. Oh. Oh. Kind of doesn't end on a high note. Okay, Ezra shows up. And man, God's provided. They've got everything they need. They get the temple set up. The walls are starting to go up. And uh, as he's getting ready to get everything going, they just went through this dangerous territory. God provided. God did all these amazing things. He touched the heart of the king. People gave gold and silver so they could reestablish worship. All of the temple vessels have been restored. I mean, it is incredible. They're seeing God do some amazing things. And they come to him and they say, Oh, by the way, Ezra, uh, the men here, there's not enough priests because... Uh, They kind of intermarried with pagan wives. And Ezra, actually, he rips his clothes. If you go back and read chapter 9, he rips his clothes. He tears his beard out. He rips the hair out of his head. And he falls flat on his face. And then they come to him and say, all right, let's let's fix this now. So it's on this high of, man, we are about to establish God's work. We're going to see some amazing things. And then it just kind of ends with, well, we got this major problem to take care of. So he says, all right, what do we do? Let's gather everybody up. They got three days. Everybody to show up. And here's how, it, here's how Ezra's side of the story ends. Three days, everybody gathers. They stand around. They're all standing. Okay. Ezra says, we need to beseech God what we're going to do to resolve this issue. All right, God's told us. Here's what we're going to do. You got to get rid of your wives and your family. And, and uh, that's what I think would be best. And they're kind of deliberating. What are we supposed to do? And they come to a conclusion that just divorce your wives. And we need to go through and kind of check each family, whether you're kosher and all of this stuff. And the men respond. The response of the people, it's kind of lackluster. They say, hey, that's great, but um, it's kind of rainy today. Like, go back and read it. It's raining. And we don't even want to stand here all day. So can we like go home and you guys kind of figure this out and just maybe call us one by one and we'll just kind of we'll take care of it, you know, over time. It's, you know, it's not too big a deal, is it? All right, just go. And that's how it ends. Just kind of like, eh, we'll get to it. And so that's the end of Ezra. Where's all the excitement, the anticipation? Nehemiah is even better. Nehemiah, man, they get the wall built. And uh, you know the story, you, you know, building projects, every preacher is going to preach on this message, you know, arise and build, and you got a trowel in one hand, a sword in the other, they're facing the enemy and all the resistance, and they're building up the walls, and in 50 plus days, they get the wall built, this is an amazing feat, and they're so excited, everybody's pumped, the enemies that had come up against them, they were able to defeat them and have victory, and God did a miracle, Nehemiah goes away, he comes back from wherever he was visiting, and when he gets back, Go back and read it. He gets back and realizes, wait a second, the Sabbaths, you're all working on the Sabbath. That's what got us in this mess in the first place. And the wall we just built, you guys just built a bunch of booths to start a marketplace and you're selling on the Sabbath day. And not only that, but that problem with the intermarriage, they're defiled. They cannot staff the temple, but everybody got so excited they wanted to staff the temple with the priests. They went ahead and just did it anyways with defiled priests. Now, Nehemiah responded a little differently. Instead of ripping out his beard and his own hair, he starts ripping out other people's beards. Go back and read it. He's going around. This is why I think maybe we don't have beards today in the Pentecostal. You know, well, some of us do now, but back in the day, it was, you know, you don't grow a beard. And I think maybe somebody, they've read that, you know, ripping out beards. So Nehemiah's going out, bless God, how dare you do this? And he's ripping their hair out, pulling beards out. 
And the whole story ends. Go to the end of Nehemiah. The story ends with Nehemiah saying, well, God, at least I tried. That's it. Sometimes God's plan doesn't work out the way we quite expected. I'm sure Nathan, Childs, did not expect this to turn out the way it is right now. And there's so much more we could cover. I'm not going to get to all of it. But I want to get to what the point of all this is. Because I think sometimes we just, we focus on what's inspirational, what's encouraging, what's exciting. And we don't talk about the reality of the fact that we're human beings and sometimes we make a mess of things. And sometimes when things don't turn out the way we expect it to, we start to measure the gauge of our success, whether or not we're fulfilling God's work. We gauge it by by outward measures that God never intends us to, by subjective measures. Back in the 70s, we, you know, I had the largest churches in America, and now look at it. God's not working. How do you know? God sometimes changes the methods and the means by which he works, but God's will is going to be accomplished one way or another. It is not about, and this is the story, I think the point of Jeremiah, uh, of Nehemiah and Ezra, is the same point Jesus made when they came to Jesus and said, look at the temple, look at the building. You get to rule from here, Jesus. You're going to be our king. Look at all this. And Jesus went, meh, it's not about this. You can't measure the success of God's work based on these outward subjective means of of a building. It's not about buildings or projects. It's not even about numbers. It's not even primarily about people. You see, God's will is singularly focused on one thing, the glory of Jesus Christ. And when you singularly focus on what, how, how am I to glorify Jesus through whatever situation I am brought to, it doesn't matter if those plans change and things don't turn out the way you expected. If you put all your hopes and plans into filling up a building or building a great work or, or trying to judge the success of what you're doing for God by some subjective outward means, you'll be discouraged and disillusioned every time. And what the Old Testament is telling us in this story is there's something more. There's something more. We're humans. We make a mess of things. Sometimes things don't turn out the way you expected. I remember we were learning a language. And uh, we came back here to preach. I uh, came back here to visit. And I preached. It was um, Pastor Wall was still here. And he pulled us in. It was New Year's Eve night where we have that special, you know, pre- different messages, things like that. He pulled us in the office. He said, I hate to do this for you before you get up and preach. But he said, I just got a call from a guy that you guys are closely working with over there in, uh, where you're learning the language, not in Senegal, but in, in uh, Canada. And he said... Uh, he just called me and said that he doesn't think Julie is fit to be a missionary. Like, came out of left field. Like, we, we were having a great time. We're learning the language. We're involved in this church. Julie's even teaching Sunday school at the church, doing the best she can with the language. And all of a sudden, you know, kind of, it's like a hit in the gut. And you go back and things were different, of course. Things don't always turn out the way that you expect it to. But here's what the Bible says about that. Let him that glories glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, 
righteousness in the earth, for in all these things I delight, saith the Lord. Jesus said this, and this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. It's not about buildings and projects. It's about Jesus. It's not about some outward tangible thing that we can kind of say, is, is God at work? Boy, my, my kids didn't turn out the way I expect them to, or maybe the church isn't turn out the way I thought it would, or this work that I was endeavoring isn't turning out the way I expected. Sometimes God's plan changes for your life. I wasn't expecting this to happen this way. Neither was Ezra. Neither was Nehemiah. He gets back, and the very guy who opposed him every step of the way now has a special Airbnb inside the temple, all right? Things didn't turn out the way he thought it would. But the Bible's telling us there's something more. It's not just about the work. It's about Jesus, about seeking him. It's about pursuing God's will. And, uh, boy, I encourage you, this week, would you go back, read Ezra and Nehemiah, and kind of read it in that light. Highlight God's provision and his guidance. Highlight the inspirational leadership of these men and be inspired by it. But then mark all the times where just our human frailty gets in the way and messes things up. And how do you resolve that and be encouraged? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work in our life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged by what you are doing. And may we know that it is our pursuit to fulfill your will. And if we do, you'll fulfill your work through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Then we'll come.